There I am. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to The Surge. It is great to see you here this morning. Um, we are continuing our Chasing Carrots series, talking about things in life that we chase but are elusive. <laughs> I remember it was a couple of years ago. Um, I was downstairs working. Uh, Karen was off at a concert, and Evangeline was probably about five years old. By the way, she had a birthday yesterday, so be sure and embarrass her and ask her if she feels any older, which, you know, is the best birthday question ever. Uh, she would be like, no, no. But anyway, she's about five years old, and I did not know this, but she had started getting knives from the counter and cutting up an apple on her own. And we never really talked to her about knives being the best parents ever. And so I, I was downstairs and she comes downstairs and she literally slipped off the thing and, and jammed the knife right into her hand um, and got it right in the meaty part of the palm and good enough to get stitches. So, so she, comes, she comes downstairs completely freaked out. Her hand is wide open, it's bleeding and she's, she's actually starting to go into shock from the adrenaline a little bit and she's going, Dad, Dad, I, I cut my hand, I cut my hand, I cut my hand. I looked at that and went, oh man, this is a thing. I'm the best parent ever. <laughs> it's like, you know, Dad of the year. Why don't you go upstairs and jam a knife into your hand repeatedly while I'm down here ignoring you? Um, so, so anyway, so it, as we were going through this, I said, okay, well, here, here's the thing. Let me, let me grab some shoes, just run some cold water over that, grab some tissues and try to put pressure on it. She's like, okay. So she goes and runs uh, some water over her hand and it occurs to me that this is a teachable moment. Now, that may be a weird thing to think in that, in that situation. Um, but the reality is I said, okay, can you, move your, can you move your hand? And so she can move her thumb and she can move her finger. So probably hadn't sliced a tendon or a ligament, but she did get her hand pretty good. If you're going to do it though, jam it into the meaty part of your palm right here because that's a good place to, <laughs> to get it done without a lot of lasting damage. Um, so I just started talking to her on the way. We got her in the car and she was just beside herself because she'd never really been hurt significantly, even in a minor way before. Um, I said, so, okay, so here's what's going to happen. We're going to go to the emergency room. And I'm just kind of explaining to her what's going to happen. Um, they're going to numb up your hand. They're going to clean it out a little bit. They're going to give you stitches. And she's like, oh, no. I said, what, you won't feel that after they numb up your hand. You'll be fine. And I just kind of walked her through the process. She was still pretty scared. So I said, okay, so let's pray. So I prayed for her and we prayed. I put on some worship music that she loved and we started singing along a little bit. She started to kind of calm down and breathe a little bit. We got her into the ER they numbed up her hand and then they were given that time to, to, uh, to set before they actually did the stitches. So when she started feeling a little better, um, when it stopped hurting and she's a little, you know, she's kind of in the, okay, it's, this is going to be okay. I'm sitting in the room, <laughs> we're waiting on the doctor and she says this to me. She says, dad, I'm like, yeah, am I going to need a hook hand? And I'm like, no, 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 we're not, no, we're, and then I, she starts laughing. She starts, literally starts giggling. She's totally, you know, messing with me at this point. And I'm like, uh, I don't think so, but you know what? We should ask the doctor when he comes in. So it's like, so she's sitting there, the doctor comes in and she puts on the biggest little girl eyes you've ever seen and goes, doctor. He's like, he says, yeah, dear. So are you okay? Can I get you anything? And she says, am I going to have to have a hook hand? And he goes, no, 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 we're not going to amputate. And then we both start giggling at that point. And the doctor says, you know, it, it's, it's unlikely, but we should ask the nurse. When the nurse gets back, we should ask her. So, so the nurse comes in and she does the thing again. Nurse, she's like, yes, honey, can I get you something? Are you okay? She says, am I going to have to have a hook hand? And she's, she's working the ER like he's at Ha Ha's in Cleveland. I mean, she's basically got the entire ER absolutely in stitches and is having a good time at this point. So we got the stitches. Her mom came and her mom freaked out and there's a whole thing. Mom, 
I'm gonna have to have a hook hand. And we're all laughing at that point. You're like, why are there 10 people laughing about the hook hand? I've never been more proud of my daughter. That was pretty, that was a, that was a nice pull and she milked it for quite a long time. It was really good. Um, but the, the interesting thing that happened there was there was real comfort that happened. And what we're talking about today is the idea of comfort. Comfort is a carrot that we chase, but interestingly, we actually use the word comfort in two very different ways. One way is our cultural idea of comfort, which is I want to be comfortable, I want to be warm, I want to be fed, I want all these things. And then we have another idea of comfort that's actually used that is much more in line with the biblical idea of comfort, which is to actually step into someone's life when they're hurting and bring them some level of encouragement, some level of hope, something that they can hang on to that's actually a value when they're in distress. So this is the biblical idea. This is the cultural idea. And I want to talk about the cultural idea just for a second so that we can move away from that because it's such a value and such a priority in our society. And if we could set that aside and move the other direction, it would bless us and make us healthier. (laughs) So the the cultural uh, thing of comfort is something that we're all very familiar with. It's to enjoy life. It's to, you know, vacation forever. Um, It's to not have to work. It's to be okay. It's to have all the things that we need to avoid as much pain as possible. Um, We don't have to work. We don't have to do these kinds of things. Um, But the the problem is, is when the, the pursuit of that idea becomes a primary driver in our lives, it can be really unhealthy. Now, let me just say from the outset, goodness, enjoy your life. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that. Go on vacation, take a day off, spend some time with your family, do some things that are fun and to power down. Even, even God took a day off. I mean, like it, it's okay to do that, but don't let it be the primary driver. And I think one of the things that pushes us to this idea, maybe more than we're accustomed to, uh, goes back to the very Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, if you remember when, when Adam and Eve sinned and they fell, Um, there was a curse involved. And part of the curse to Adam was this, that by the sweat of your brow, you're going to farm and the land is going to, work is going to be hard. It's not going to be easy like it was before. It's going to be toil. It's going to be a grind. It's going to be very, very difficult. And I think we could, we can all, we've all felt some of that, right? Sometimes work is not fulfilling. Sometimes it's not uh, a good thing in our lives. It's, it's more of something that kind of drags us down and that we have to do, that we endure rather than enjoy. And there's a curse related to work that we have to fight against. And I think a couple of years ago, this was exacerbated by the idea of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, what happened was, is before, before the Industrial Revolution and the factories and the division of labor and all of these ideas working their way into our economy, Work was a very different animal. Now, I think it was still disconnected in some way, but basically work looked like this. You would, have, you would step into the family business and if your family were farmers, you would have a good chance of being a farmer, right? And you would work with your brothers and sisters and mom and dad and the extended family, aunts and uncles thing would all work together. And there was this incredible sense of community. There was this incredible sense of learning. There was this incredible sense of generational blessing that went from, you know, your dad would work hard and set up, for success and then you would eventually take over the thing. Or you would, if you didn't do the family thing, you would look around and say, what do I want to do for a job? And you say, ah, I want to be a blacksmith, (laughs) right? So, So you would go and you would apprentice 
to a blacksmith, you would find the best blacksmith you could and you would sign on with him and you'd basically work in his shop for free or for very little. And the pay was he would train you how to be a blacksmith. And over time, you would acquire skills, you would acquire tools, you would acquire knowledge, you might even acquire some customers that really liked the way you went about stuff. Eventually you would go out on your own, but it was very much a self-selected, hands-on, on-the-job training. And it was very personal, it was very connected, it was very uh, community-centered in terms of how it worked. And, and there was a lot of family with that. There was a lot of apprenticeship. There was a lot of significance attached to the idea of work. But in the Industrial Revolution, something happened. All of a sudden, we just needed bodies. We didn't need your skill. <laughs> we, didn't need, we didn't need the specific thing that you could do. We just needed you to stand in the line and put the widget on the thing and hand it to the next person. And all of a sudden, we had this idea of labor, of unskilled labor. I mean, you may not know this, but in that time, in the, in the early 1800s, you know, think pre-Oliver Twist days, the idea of someone using their labor was really tied to prostitution. That if a woman didn't have a job and she didn't have something to offer in terms of work and she needed money, she would offer her labor. She would offer her body for pay. <laughs> and this idea kind of transferred on to people at large, this idea that you have no value as a person, you have no individual value. We just need a warm body and we'll give you some pay for that. It contributed to the idea and it really increased the idea of work as toil. It fed right into the curse. It became a grind. Working at the factory is a grind. And in terms of human value, it's a bad fit. And, and in many jobs, even today, it, I think you know, many people in this room are doing, are doing work that's very meaningful and that's very, very cool and that's good. But even today, there are a lot of people that their job is just basically, it's toil, it's a grind, it's a bad fit and we don't like it. And so in our culture, we have this idea of how could we escape from this? And so we've basically drawn a place on the map that's as far away from the grind of work as we can get. And what it is, it's the idea of comfort. It's the idea of the desert island that we own, that somehow we're rich and we don't need money, but we're fed and we're warm and everything we have is, is this ideal state. We don't lack for anything. Pain is avoided and it's comfort. And it's something that takes a really big place in our head, that the idea of heaven is living in Hawaii or some, somewhere really lovely. But I'm here to tell you this morning, I'm here to tell you, this kind of comfort and chasing this kind of comfort, it's very similar to processed sugar. Very similar to processed It's delicious. It's really good. But letting this drive your calorie intake will have very bad results over time. If comfort takes, it, if comfort takes the place of king inside your head, it will lead us to some really, really unhealthy things. Because we naturally drift towards inactivity, and laziness. So when we let comfort as a primary value feed into our lives, it leads to a spiritual emptiness. And, and we see this. I mean, if you have a job that you're very competent at, and at some point it becomes routine, and you stop investing, you stop learning, it's very easy to burnout. It's very easy to stagnate in that role and just there's just nothing new. And it, it's, just, it's soul sucking, even though you might be quite good at what you're doing, right? There's just nothing fresh. There's nothing new. There's nothing exciting about it. In relationships, we see this in marriage all the time. The things that we do when we're dating, we stop doing when we're married and we start taking the other person for granted. So when you're married, 
you stop doing the things you did when you were dating. When we're dating, we paid a lot of attention. We called every day. We texted. We, we did little surprising things. We gave little gifts. We bought flowers. We really paid attention to the outings to make sure they were as fun as possible. But when we're married, sometimes we forget that and we don't work as hard at it, right? And, and we get comfortable in that and we stop, we stop working as hard. It becomes routine. Over time, these patterns can become very unhealthy. Um, so comfort as a primary value, when we really focus on it, it can lead to a sense of spiritual emptiness. The second thing is this, and it ties in. Comfort as a primary value, it avoids risk, it avoids adventure, and it avoids faith. It, it's a goal, if you think about it for a minute, it's a goal that's trying to eliminate the need for anything heroic in life. I just want to be comfortable. I don't want to climb the mountain. I don't want, I don't, I don't want to fight the dragon. I don't want to do I just want to be comfortable. And, and it leads to an inactive stance. It's very passive. It's a goal that tries to put us in a place where, hear this, where we don't need God. We have what we need. We want to be comfortable. We have, we have resources. We have shelter. We have food. We have what we need relationally. And, and we, when we're in that place, what do we need God for? We've got everything that we, that we need and it's this idea that we can get to a place where we're, not, where we're not striving, where we're not active, where we're not pursuing things in life. And it's comfort. It's a bad idea. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. It's a bad idea. <laughs> Hebrews 11 says this. It talks about the heroes of the faith. And, and I won't go through all of them. There's like 11 guys here. But the, one of the first ones it mentions is Moses. And if you think about the story of Moses, Moses was an Egyptian prince. He saw injustice. He responded in anger. He buried a guy in the sand. And then he went and we ran away and became a shepherd for 40 years. Out of that season of life, God called him with the burning bush. And then buckle up, the ride was on. This guy with a speech impediment is standing before the most powerful person in the world saying, you're going to do what God wants you to do or you're going to regret it. You know, and he shows up with a spine and leads three million refugees out of, out of slavery, out of bondage, out of captivity, and is pursued by the greatest army and the greatest empire in the world and wins the day. Then he goes through, you know, these, this, entire, this entire journey in the wilderness. But say what you want about Moses. He wasn't passive. Nothing he did after the burning bush was comfortable for him. He's living in the desert. It wasn't a comfortable place, but it was a place of greatness. It was a place of God's will and his speaking. It was a place of connection. It was a place where he's writing the first five books of scripture, but it wasn't comfortable. It wasn't a life of comfort but it was a life of significance. We look at Abraham in Hebrews 11. Abraham, this guy that was called from the place where he lives and God says, I want you to go. Where are we going? I'll tell you on the way. <laughs> just go, right? Just that way, just go. And he starts going by faith and, and say what you want about Abraham. In many ways, very successful person, materially, spiritually, father of the child of promise, Isaac, and he had this amazing faith and this amazing life in many ways, but what it wasn't was comfortable, right? He's constantly dealing with conflict. He's constantly dealing with Lot. He's constantly dealing with, is this child gonna come? Is this child not gonna come? And it was just emotionally, spiritually, physically, in many ways, in many situations, very uncomfortable. God tells Noah in, to build a boat. I want you to build a boat. 
And basically for a hundred years, Noah built this thing in his yard that makes him the laughing stock for everyone who sees or hears about it. That crazy old coot is building a giant boat. Now, now he was vindicated when it started to rain. But the reality is building that size of a boat with really not a lot of blueprints, with people with no support is not a comfortable thing to do. It's not a life of comfort. It's actually very active. It's very uncomfortable. They did these amazing things, but not from a place of comfort. They were living for a burden that God revealed to them. And they did things believing what God said in such a way, and this is key, that if God had not shown up, they would have been totally helpless and they would have looked like idiots to everybody, right? True of Moses, true of Noah, true of Abraham. If God didn't show up in their lives, they look like morons. The biblical idea of comfort takes us out of our own ability to secure things, to do things in life. It takes us in an entirely different direction. So let's look at uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 1. This will be our scripture for today. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, which the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And this passage leads us to this thought that real comfort comes in times that are filled with discomfort. The context for real biblical comfort comes from hard experiences. And the reality is that hard times teach us more than happy times do. <laughs> I was widowed at the tender age of 22. And, and for days, for days, I, God comforted me pretty directly. I said, God, and he said, yes. <laughs> and I asked God hard questions and he gave me straight answers. For a period of days, this happened. And it was an unbelievable comfort. But the reality is the pressure uh, and the intensity of that experience brought me anxiety, brought me some stress, but it also got my attention. And the lessons that I learned in, those, in that time deepened me in some really important ways that I wouldn't trade for anything, that I don't know how I would have gotten to any other way. Now, that wasn't fun. And the reality is the pain of that kind of grieving is a thing, but it lasts for a season, the, the, the brunt of it. But the healthy addition to our character that we bring out of those hard experiences lasts forever. So it's this hard thing for a season, goodness that lasts forever, and that's the comfort that God speaks into our life in times of trouble. James says it this way. He says, consider it all joy when your faith is tested, when you have trials, and when you have this, this idea of testing and this idea of badness. The, the Greek there with testing, it's not like, you know, there are two trains heading towards each other at, at this mile per hour, one's in Chicago and one's in Baltimore. It's not that kind of a test. The test is, is really, it's, it's actually a term used in, in metallurgy to get back to our blacksmith thing. It was used, uh, the idea of silver. You have silver and it has impurities in the silver. What you do is you melt it down under a very hot source. The impurities actually rise to the top and then they scrape the dross, the impurities off of the top. And then they do it again, right? And they do it again until you can actually see yourself in the silver and it's pure. That's what James is talking about. These hard times 
bring impurities and bring bad focus up to the top so we can see it and we can scrape that stuff off and it deepens us. That's why he says, consider it all joy. Romans 5 says it this way, that we glory in our suffering, not because we're stupid, but because we understand that these hard times bring this amazing opportunity that just doesn't come any other way. It's not fun, it's not easy, but it produces an amazing result. So real comfort from God comes in times that are filled with discomfort. Next thing is this. Real comfort leads us to generosity, hope, and generational blessings. See, the, the cultural idea of comfort, which is not all bad, but don't let it be, a th- don't let it be the primary thing. The biblical idea of comfort is not selfish. It, it's looking to share the comfort that God has given us. And it comes with perspective, it comes with encouragement, it comes with healing that we've experienced and that we can share to other people who are in that, in that uh, situation. Heard a story about a guy actually in Oklahoma City. Um, <laughs> he was on his way and he was, he was on his way to work. He wanted to buy a cup of coffee. He had a few bucks in his pocket and he was gonna spend it on coffee, which is his normal thing, just loved his coffee in the morning. It was a homeless guy who said, I'm really hungry. Do you have a few bucks for something to eat? And the guy's going, Coffee, homeless guy, food, coffee, homeless guy, food. And it was a real decision, you know, because he left his coffee. And like, we've all been there if we're honest. Um, He says, you know what? Okay. So he buys the guy a meal and actually starts to talk to him. The meal turns into two meals. And it just kind of became a thing. He'd come in and buy the guy a little sandwich and and started talking to him and developed a relationship with him. And and eventually the guy said, hey, uh, do you go to church? Yes, I do. Can, Can I go with you? Sure. So he, he picks up the, the homeless guy, Dave. He brings him to church. He brings him to church for three years. And eventually Dave accepts Christ. He becomes baptized. He helps him get a job. He gets back on his feet. He gets his legs under him. And now Dave is leading what they call a life group in Oklahoma City. And he's an active minister of the gospel. He has a family. He's good. But it, the, the catalyst for that, the, the, the spark was not coffee, right? The spark was the meal. The spark was the decision to ignore his own comfort, but to comfort someone else. And it started this chain of events that literally transformed the guy's life. And not just his life, but the lives of all the people that he touches downstream for the cost of a cup of coffee. Yeah, I mean, isn't that something? Sometimes these things go further and deeper than we realize. When I was a kid, I wasn't exactly... uh, danger prone, I would say, but I broke a lot of bones. I, I broke 11 bones as a kid. So arms and ankles. And you know, I had a, I had a thing. I just broke a lot of bones. I was uh, not risk averse, I think you would say. Uh, but because of that, I was in the ER a lot. I kind of knew what to expect. And so when Evangeline jams a knife into her hand from, because the best father in the world was watching over her carefully. And whenever that happens, I know what to expect. And the experience that I've had suddenly becomes a playbook for bringing her real comfort. Because the thing is, you know, the stitches is a thing and the physical, taking care of the physical wound is a thing, but the danger there was much more on the soul level. For her to be afraid, to be afraid of knives, to be afraid of injury, to be afraid of doctors, to be afraid of a situation of minor emergency. And all of a sudden, because of my experience and because of the grace that God had given me, I'm able to be a blessing to Evangeline and to be a real comfort for her in a way that she's okay. That the situation actually becomes a weird positive because she's funny and able to get all this, all this great attention from 
the people around. See, it, it, we're able to share the things that we learn along the way, and that's the weight of real comfort, perspective, encouragement, blessing. And I got to tell you, the impact of my being widowed as a kid now gives me an amazing ability to speak into people who are grieving. I know what you're going through. I know how that feels. Here's some things you can expect, right? Here's some things you're going to see on this path. And they go, wow, that's kind of amazing. And you can, you can be a real comfort. You're going to be okay. You know, you can just, sometimes people need to hear that when we say it out loud. But there's, there's a real credibility that, that out of our own experience, out of our own wounding, we can speak comfort into the lives of others with amazing credibility and with amazing weight and spiritual wisdom. So real comfort leads us to generosity. It leads us to hope. It leads us to generational blessings for the people that are coming along behind us. Next thing is this. Um, and the last thing is this, actually. Real comfort never trades the temporary for the forever. Never trades the temporary for the forever. So the picture here is of Jacob and Esau. I'm actually reading through Genesis with Evangeline, and this is around chapter 20 or so. Uh, the situation is this. Jacob and Esau, Esau's the firstborn son, so he's in line to get the blessing from Isaac, the child of promise, and so he's going to be the guy to carry God's blessing into the earth, but Jacob wants it. He wants it, and Esau's not too bright. <laughs> and so Jacob's making a bowl of soup, and Esau says, man, I really want some soup. I really want some soup. And Jacob says, I'll tell you what, I'll trade you some soup, but you give me the blessing. And Esau's like, the blessing, can't eat it, can't smoke it. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's pretty, it's pretty worthless. Done, sold for, you know, a bowl of soup. So he literally trades, he makes a contract with David to sell the blessing of God for a bowl of soup. And this is funny because this is what we do when we get captured by comfort, right? We, we trade in the blessing of God's will for a cup of coffee, for, for our own desires at the time. Our culture wants you to trade your blessing for a bowl of soup. Don't do it. It's a bad trade. It's a bad seed. And this is the danger of focusing on comfort. It's not the thing that we want to enjoy. It's not the thing that makes us comfortable. It's not the vacation that we don't need or the thing we don't need or the, the in my case, the tech gadget that I do not need. That You know, it's like, it's the, it's the thing that we don't need. That's not the danger. The danger is what we trade to get it. When we give away the blessing to get the comfortable thing, often we'll get something good. <laughs> but we're trading away something great. We're trading away something incredible that will bless a thousand generations after us. And don't do that. It's a bad trade. It's a bad trade. Don't trade the temporary for the forever. Um, there's a guy named Justin Wren who's an MMA fighter. Um, he made some money. He's a Christian. He was looking around for a good charity to do. And he went on a trip to Africa with some friends. And he met these people uh, in Uganda from the Pygmy tribe. He just fell in love with them. He, he just resonated uh, with these guys. So he literally, you know, like, like we all would, he dropped his schedule and lived with them for a year. <laughs> so it's like, he's all in, right? He's just, he's just kind of that guy. Um, so he, he lived with them for a year. And in their language, he found that they call themselves the forgotten ones. Isn't that interesting? It just hurts my heart when you hear that. that that's, that's how they see themselves as a people. We are the forgotten ones. We are in the crevice. We're in the shadows. And as, they, as he lived with them for a year, they actually gave him a pygmy name, uh, Ephiosa. And Ephiosa roughly translates to the man who loves us. <laughs> Isn't that a thing? The man who loves us. And so he was just captured by these people. He's like, you know what? 
there's some things that we can do. We're going to make, we're going to, we're going to find some clean water. We're going to buy some land. We're going to get some stuff done to help these people out. So I'd like to just watch this uh, quick video of him talking about this. Founder and president of Fight for the Forgotten. And uh, stay tuned because there's going to be an awesome video that follows this video. Or if you just click the link, um, it's just a two minute teaser trailer uh, from our last trip to Uganda with the Batwa Pygmies. And I just wanted to take a moment and set up the video and also say thank you, thank you, thank you so much to Joe Rogan, uh, my buddy, and his listeners, his crowd, his community, his following uh, who have helped us so much, and also the Cash App, a major sponsor of Joe Show and uh, awesome supporting partner of Fight for the Forgotten. Just thank you guys so much because we've been able to raise over $150,000 together uh, to fight for people, to fight for the forgotten, and to empower the Batwa Pygmies. Uh, God bless Justin Wren. He, you know, it, it's interesting. He, he, when he made some money doing the thing that he did, when he looked around, he could have spent that on himself. <laughs> he could have got houses and cars and done the things that we see people do when they, they run into some money that they didn't necessarily grow up with. But instead, he looked around and he found a people that he could really make an impact for. He brought them real biblical comfort. The question our culture asks about comfort, it's all about me. What can I do for me? What can I do to make my life easier, better, more fun? Uh, but the gospel idea of comfort is about how God has been there for us, how he's brought people into our lives, how he's been there when we needed him. And how does that uniquely pay forward in our lives and relationships now? So what I want to do for one minute of time, one minute, is I want you to think about an experience that you've had that was hard, that was a hard thing, and the lesson that you brought out of that time. But here's what I want you to think about. How could I use that lesson to bless someone else, to speak over them, to speak real comfort into their lives, 
to be an encouragement, to be a help, to be something to propel them forward. It doesn't have to be in Uganda. It doesn't have to be a big thing. You don't have to start a website or a business or a thing. It can be very simple. It can be the cup of coffee. It can be the catalyst uh, to someone with a real act of kindness. So I want to take one minute, think about a wounding that you've had, how God has spoken to you in that place and what you could bring to someone else.